Hello, and welcome to the Christ Table Podcast, a Bible study for those who struggle with digging into the Bible, but who want to develop a richer faith, one with some meat on its bones. I'm Kevin Young, a media guy turned minister who's passionate about helping others thrive, especially spiritually. If you're unaware, Christ Table is a movement of people returning the church to her roots, in homes, around tables, over food with old friends and fresh conversations. Check us out over at www.christtable.today. In the meantime, our study continues on the topic of brave conversations. We'll be focusing on infertility and miscarriage today as we look deeper into 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's dig in. I understand that many of us may not know what it is like to be infertile or to miscarry. The reality of the situation is, though, is that this topic touches many couples. Statistically, somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of couples find that they are unable to have children. And that same statistic holds true as well, that same percentage for couples who actually end up miscarrying and losing a child, somewhere around 15 to 20 percent of couples of a pregnancy that ends in that way. And that is simply pregnancies that make it to the eighth week. If we were to include miscarriages that happen very early on in a pregnancy, then that number would be much, much higher. I know that many have experienced this, but all of us, I think, can understand how you have longed for something that simply couldn't be or something that was just out of reach. Now, we're not going to over-spiritualize these conversations as we walk through them. We're going to talk and deal directly and hopefully bravely and courageously about infertility and miscarriage. But no matter where we are on the spectrum of relationship and experience, there are still things that we can glean out of these conversations. There are things that we have to offer as a part of our story, and especially we need to listen. We need to listen to the experiences and the stories of other people. Perhaps for most of us, that is the bravest thing that we can do is simply close our mouth and listen. That takes a lot of courage. Today, we find ourselves perhaps in what is the most classic infertility passage in the Bible. Many will recognize this passage because it is the foundation that is used for many baby dedications in the Protestant evangelical church. But there's a part of our reading today, and I want you to do the entirety of the reading, the entire chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's not a long chapter. It's not a difficult chapter to read. I'm not going to tackle the entire chapter because as I was reading through it, I knew and had paid attention to the second half of the story, but I had never really paid much attention to the first half of the story. The part of the story before the miracle. First Samuel chapter one, verse one. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zoph in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf of Ephraim. Now, verse two tells us that this is a complicated relationship. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah did not. This tells us a great deal of information. Hannah, because she is listed first among the wives, 
This tells us that Hannah was the first wife. Now, Hannah did not have children. So the conclusion that we can immediately draw here is that Elkanah has taken on a second wife in order to try to produce children because his first wife, Hannah, could not. Though God in the Bible takes a relatively dim view of the practice of a second or third or multiple wives in the Bible, during this time period, it was also essentially culturally acceptable, especially in a situation where, and this is placing blame, where the woman was unable to bear a child. Now, we know enough today to understand that it is much more complicated than that. It is not always the female physical body that causes there to be no children born to a couple. But in those days, it was seen not only as being an embarrassment to the wife, it was also seen as being um, untenable, unlivable, because there needed to be in that patriarchal society a male heir to assume control to in to keep the family together and so Elkanah um, takes a second wife Penaniah which makes us kind of think of him as a dog seriously you're gonna you're gonna treat your wife that way simply because she's unable to bear children to you well let's keep reading each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at, the de- at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Now, what we see here is that Elkanah is complicated. He isn't just a dog of a man who takes a second wife because his first wife isn't able to to produce him children in the way that he wants, but we also see that he is a very religious man. He is a very faithful man because only the most religious would make this journey once every year to Shiloh, which was the central place to worship and to sacrifice to God. And so what we see is a man who is complex, a man who is complicated. And this This perhaps reflects many of our relationships and reflects us as well. Uh, Things are not always black and white. And whenever it comes to children and family, things can be very complicated, can be messy, can be very chaotic and complex. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penaniah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, He would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So meat was a um, very rare commodity to be eaten in those days. And so it may well be that this was the only meat that they had at any point during the year was the meat that was gained from the sacrifice whenever they went to Shiloh. Now, Penaniah gets a larger portion of meat so that she may feed her children. But Hananiah, though he loved her, would still only receive a smaller portion than Penaniah did. And so you can see here that already there is a rivalry probably developing between the two women. The second wife, the one who produced not one, but 
two children, probably saw herself as Queen Bee, the more important wife. And we see that because verse 6 tells us that Penaniah would taunt Hannah, would make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Now, the language in that is unusual. In fact, if you look at it closely, it, it essentially states in the way that it's written in the Hebrew that it was God himself who had closed Hannah's womb. So we know it could have been the man's fault for being sterile. Clearly, there could have been a, an issue with, with Hannah, with the female here, but the Bible actually clears up the situation for us in a way that that most of the people in those days would not have known and that it was actually God himself who prevents her from having children. Now, this could also be, and I need to say this, another way of simply saying they don't know what the cause was. But either way, God here seems to get the blame. Year after year, it was the same. Pen and I would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. And so, to add insult to injury, it's not enough that Hannah feels worthless. It's not enough that she feels as though she is unable to do what is likely in her mind the one thing that she is created to do, and that is to produce children for her husband, for their legacy. Um, this would have been a burden that was in that culture, one that would have been almost too much to bear. And then to add to that the insults from the other wife um, reminds me that oftentimes whenever we want something or need something that is just out of our grasp or that is unavailable, um, it seems as though we can either put ourselves down or others put ourselves down as well. Many of us will understand that feeling, perhaps most directly. Many, many will understand that feeling of, of being infertile for a length of time or ongoing. Many will understand what it feels like to, to have walked through one or more miscarriages. To understand what it feels like whenever people taunt you or, or say things to you. Many people will understand what that is like and what that feels like. So this is clearly not a great situation. But as we continue here, each time Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. And um, this story just resonates so deeply, not just in general with those who have wanted something that was just out of their reach, which I think all of us can identify with, but especially with those who have struggled with infertility and the questions, is it me? Is it you? Is it him? Why? Miscarriage and struggling with the answers to that. And unfortunately, as is oftentimes the situation here, someone who is in the close circle here, it's the husband, Elkanah, um, ask Hannah, why are you crying? Because you can't get pregnant, because you're being treated so badly. Why 
Why are you crying? He would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Um, no, no, Elkanah, it's not. It's not. Not when you feel that this, as Hannah certainly did, is what you were created for. Not everybody feels that way, but Hannah certainly did. Not when you want something and it's just out of your reach. Not when it's so important to you. Not when you even feel as though you deserve something, and Hannah certainly did. You know, this is a a tough, tough story. And the good news is for Hannah and Elkanah, there is there's a happy ending to this story. Not everyone's story, though, ends in the same way that Hannah's did. Now, the interesting thing here, and we're going to stop reading there, but I want you to continue reading. Even if you know the story, I want you to pick up 1 Samuel chapter 1 and keep reading. And what you're going to find is that it really is Hannah's prayer that is the pivotal point in the story. And I might even say that it is Hannah's prayer that is the pivotal point in the entire Old Testament. This, this is a hinge story, which means that everything that comes before and everything that comes after really hinges on this story. And this is one of the, if not the most important hinge in the Old Testament. And the hinge is right at Hannah's prayer. Her prayer is important. Her prayer is powerful. And her prayer is an example to us of what we should do whenever we are in similar situations. And so I want you to read it and I want you to pay attention to it. And I want you to identify with this story. Many, many will identify with this story firsthand. But I also think that it's very important for us who maybe cannot identify with this story firsthand to identify with this story secondhand, to maybe not have empathy but to have sympathy for other people who are walking through similar journeys as this. And then before we go today, and, and there's so much more that needs to be said, so I'm so glad that we have an entire week, a, a book discussion on Wednesday night to talk about this and to share stories. But there's one other thing that needs to be said here, and it's this. Hannah is presented as the most faith-filled woman in the Old Testament. And this is, this is long before she ever becomes pregnant. And this isn't just faith that God is going to give her what she wants. This is faith that simply, simply trusts God. Trust God in the unknown. And a faith that is even willing and able to trust God even if the outcome of the situation isn't what she wants. And yet, even though she has that kind of deep faith, she still has the bravery and the courageous ability to confront God and to say, God, this is the desire of my heart. This is what I want, to plead with God. Hannah's an example. Hannah is an example, not so much of a woman who gets what she wants. Hannah is not so much an example of, of someone who was not fertile, whose womb was closed and whom was 
open through prayer. But Hannah is an example of a woman who had faith. Even when the lay of the land gave her every reason to not have faith in God. To not trust his greater plan. To not believe that he had her best and his best in mind. That's the story for all of us, I think, at the end of the day here, is that we must, like Hannah, no matter what the situations in life may bring to us, we must be people who have faith. Are you a Hannah? This Bible study on Brave Conversations is brought to you by Christ Table. If you'd like to join us in the study, there's an easy-to-follow guide in the show notes. We'd love to have you join us. You know, 65 million adults in the United States have dropped out of church, and that number will grow by 2.7 million before the end of this year. We here at Christ Table are committed to doing something about that. We're committed to creating a world where the table is once again the center of the home, the center of family life, and especially the center of faith formation again. Our mission? That's simple. To help people eat freely and drink deeply of life and of faith. Find out more about us by going to www.christtable.today. When you get over to christtable.today, be sure to sign up for our email list there. And for those who choose to donate, I've got a resource box that I want to send you in the mail as my thanks. And trust me, you're going to like it. By the way, the podcast is available because of the generous donations of our listeners and the incredible community of people who call Christ's table their spiritual home. Join us on our next episode as we continue our conversation on infertility and miscarriage. And if you'd like to watch these Bible studies live, there's more information on our website about that as well over at www.christtable.today. Thanks so much for listening. We wouldn't be here without you. Until next time, I'm Pastor Kevin Young. And this is the Christ Table Podcast.